0: On today's broadcast and continuing for the next two weeks, we'll be looking into the theory of evolution and some of the so-called proofs of it that skeptics often bring up to the Bible believer. Evolutionary theory is the assertion that all living things have a common ancestor from which they evolved through numerous successive changes over billions of years to produce a complexity of life that we see today. Kind of a bacterium-to-Beethoven concept, It is widely accepted, but not by all scientists. In fact, there are many, many problems with the claims of evolution. Our teacher, Mr. Michael Penfold, will begin a three-part series today by examining the 14 main proofs of evolution. If you're a Christian, we know that this short series will be a help to you in discussing this with unbelievers. And if you're not a Christian, we trust that with an open mind, you will face up to the difficulties of the theory and consider what the Bible has to say about this important topic.
1: Criticizing Darwinian evolution is not popular. Richard Dawkins, who is just up the road here in Oxford, in a book called Devil's Chaplain, he wrote, No qualified scientist doubts evolution is a fact. He went on to say that it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked. But I'd rather not say that. And that's how many people look at the subject of evolution. Basically, if you don't believe it, you're insane, you're stupid, or wicked at the worst. Somebody on the radio recently on one of the Radio 4 talk shows, he said, evolution is true as the sky is blue. And this is the sort of paradigm that we're facing in today's society. However, hundreds, in fact thousands of scientists, are now questioning and seeking to unravel Darwinian evolution. On the 1st of October 2001, in the Weekly Standard, a hundred scientists paid for and took out a two-page advert called a scientific descent from Darwinism, in which they said, we're sceptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. I'm one of those people who's sceptical of the claim that you can get from a bacterium to Beethoven by chance mutations naturally selected. In fact, I'm more than sceptical. I don't believe it. Charles Darwin was the man who came up with this idea. Others were thinking of it at the time, Wallace and so on, but Darwin was the man who crystallised it and put it in his book, Origin of Species. And if you go to the British Natural History Museum in London, you can go into an exhibit all about evolution and the origin of species and Darwin and so on. First thing you see when you walk in is a statue of Darwin. Behind Darwin is a little sign and on the sign it says, the problem Darwin solved. You see, before Darwin, if you didn't believe in God and didn't believe in creation, what would you have said to someone who challenged you and said, well, if you don't believe in God, how did it all get here? How did all the animals come to be? And even if you believed in some kind of evolution, you really had no explanation as to how it took place. And Darwin came up with this idea which he called natural selection. And Darwin, according to Richard Dawkins in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Darwin made it possible to become an intellectually fulfilled atheist. In other words, before Darwin, it was tricky being an atheist. But now you've got the facts, you've got all you need to know in natural selection. What is natural selection? which simply is the idea that nature selects and preserves useful variations in animals and plants. And those that are best adapted leave the most offspring, and of course after Darwin, genetic mutation was added into the mix, so we have Neo-Darwinism, and together mutations and natural selection have apparently built everything our eyes can see. Now let's just define evolution. Because when you start criticizing evolution, people get a little bit worried and a definition is going to help us. Now, by evolution, I do not mean variation within a kind. In other words, if we take zebras and horses and donkeys, it may well possibly be that they all are variations of one original created kind. We could say the same for lions and tigers and leopards, or perhaps even wolves and dingoes and dogs. I'm not worried about variation within a kind or a prototype. What Darwin is saying is something completely different. Darwin is actually saying that every plant, every fungus, every animal, all of life is related directly. So that a bat and a buttercup and a banana and Beethoven are all directly related. If you ate plants today, you ate your relatives. Because all of life is one big tree starting from an original replicating molecule in a warm pond billions of years ago, we now have this massive tree of life. And we're all on this tree of life somewhere. You're a node and the other plant is a node and the animals are another node. We're all nodes on this great tree of life. And sometimes when evolutionists think about creation, they have a caricature of what it is. They look at all the different types of dogs and all the different types of finches and all the... different types of fish and they say, are you trying to tell us that God made every single one of those different types originally in the Garden of Eden? And they have this caricature of the creation model that what we have now is exactly what we had then. But that's not what I'm saying, that's not what the Bible says. The actual creation model says that God created kinds of animals and that the variation that we see today is a result of natural selection and environment and so on acting on the information that was in the genomes of those original, created kinds. But somebody says, well this is very interesting. You sound like you're willing to admit to little changes, but you're not willing to admit to big changes. But all that Darwinism is saying, is that if you take small changes and add lots of years to that, then you get the big changes. So really you haven't got a leg to stand on. Well let's just examine this in greater detail. If you take a Chihuahua and compare it with a Great Dane, you have an enormous difference. It seems to be an enormous difference. And so Darwin is saying, look, what man has been able to do by selective breeding in a very short space of time. Now, if we can do that in a very short space of time, just think what natural selection could do over a period of millions of years. It could turn a reptile into a mammal. Now, think carefully. The differences between a Chihuahua and a Great Dane are of an altogether different nature to the differences between a reptile and a mammal. What's the difference between a chihuahua and a great day? There's hardly any difference at all, except for the shape, the size, the colour and the appearance. The bodily parts are exactly the same. But what's the difference between a mammal and a reptile? Well, the differences between mammals and reptiles are enormous. That's why one's called a mammal and one's called a reptile. The differences between a reptile and a mammal are not differences of appearance or shape or size or colour. They are fundamental and radical differences. For instance, if we were to try and change a mammal into a reptile, we need to evolve a fourth chamber in the heart by mutation and natural selection only. We need to evolve mammary glands and a milk supply. We need to evolve a hair covering. We need to evolve a temperature control system for warm blood. We need to evolve a corti in the inner ear. We need to evolve a diaphragm. Now, uh, this is just a very small sample. I could make a list of a hundred things. All those things have got to take place to change one basic kind of animal, a reptile, into another basic kind of animal, a mammal. These are mammoth changes. And I would say this is a staggering claim. Dear old Carl Sagan, who was not on the same wavelength as me as far as belief in God is concerned, he was an atheist, he made this challenge. He said, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary proof. I'd like to just turn that back and apply it to the Darwinian theory. It is an extraordinary claim that every organ in your body, every animal, every plant, every fungus came from a single replicating molecule in a warm pond billions of years ago by nothing more than mutation by chance, acted upon and selected by nature. That is a staggering extraordinary claim. Now we're going to outline tonight's lecture. First of all, we're going to dismiss 14 usual proofs for that claim. Then we're going to discuss eight problems with the claim, and then we're going to discover three pathways to a different way of looking at things. I went to school in Oxford. About 25 years ago, I sat in a biology class. I remember the day he came in and said, today we're going to discuss human evolution. And he started to outline proofs. One of the proofs he gave so-called Proust, was the evolution of the giraffe's neck. He told me, and the rest of the class, that a giraffe years ago had a short neck, and as it stretched up to reach the leaves on the trees, all the low ones had to reach up higher and higher, and and then when its child was born, the baby giraffe had a slightly longer neck than the adult giraffe, and so on and so on, and so on, until we got the giraffe today. Now that was complete unscientific nonsense and hocus-pocus. That isn't even Darwinism. That's what's called Lamarckism. There was a man in France years ago and he believed that you could inherit characteristics which you acquire during your lifetime. You can't do that. If you cut off a rat's tail, its baby will still have a tail. You cut off a million generations of rat's tail, that poor critter, the million and first one will still have a tail. Because you, genetics has destroyed that so-called proof. But in the public mind, that's the kind of thing people actually believe. People believe that a reptile flapped around and frayed its scales and then the frayed scale turned into feathers. But even if you could fray part of your body, if you haven't got the genetics for that fraying, it won't be passed on to your children. Now let me take you to the British Natural History Museum, a very imposing building down there in Kensington, in London. As you go round, you start finding these so-called proofs for evolution. Dog breeding is one of the first that you come across. As I've said, Darwin reasoned that dogs are amazingly varied and if human beings can bring out all this variety in a short space of time, what could evolution do over millions of years? But let us think about it. What did we start with? Dogs. What have we got now? Dogs. No dog in the world is any less of a dog than any other dog. And it's a very poor example of natural selection because dogs are being bred intelligently by human beings. It's not even an analogy with natural selections. In fact, there are limits to what can be done. You could never make a dog as big as an elephant or as small as a pea because the genetics aren't able to stretch that far. And if we let all the dogs out into the wild again, all those breeds would disappear, go back to one basic kind. So the variations between the dogs tell us absolutely nothing about where the dogs came from in the first place. And they're not a proof of evolution. You keep going around the uh, museum. You come across an exhibit to do with the finches in the Galapagos Islands. That's an actual photograph of the, what's in the museum. It's called a textbook example of evolution. Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands off the coast of Ecuador, noticed that on the different islands there were different kinds of finches. Some had long beaks, some had short beaks. I think he found about 13 different species of finches. And so what he said was, surely God didn't make all these 13 different kinds. These have come about by natural selection, by different environments, and given a long enough time, It wouldn't just be a variation between beaks. The finches would turn into different kinds of animals. But again, let's think about it. What do we start with? Finches. What do we end with? Finches. In fact, this has got nothing to do with mutations. This is just the variety that's already in the genomes of those finches. And they're acted upon by various things that go on in the Galapagos Islands. If they have a drought, some of the uh, short-beak finches die off and so on and so forth. So the variations between the finches tell us nothing, not one thing, about where those finches came from in the first place. I remember also the day in my biology class when the teacher put up on the board a sequence of horses. They had a small one with four toes at the start, going up to our present day horse at the end with just the one hoof. I didn't know at the time, because I was only 15, 16, that the whole thing was made up. In fact, there are 12 different family trees, at least, of these horses. Basically, out of the 250 horse types, they've arranged them in a sequence, ignoring the fact that the rib numbers are changing and the vertebrae numbers in the back are changing, just lining them up in relation to how many toes they have and how big they are. In fact, a biologist who is an evolutionist, Harry Buck Nielsen, said, The family tree of the horse is beautiful and continuous only in the textbooks. So that's proof number four. What about proof number five? I love this one. This is the one that they were on about on the radio with me today on Radio Oxford. The peppered moss. During the Industrial Revolution in England, there was a shift in Manchester between light peppered moss and dark coloured peppered moss. Back before the Industrial Revolution, most of the moss had been a light color after the industrial revolution, they were mainly a dark color. Nobody understood why this industrial melanism was taking place until the 1950s when a man called Mr. Kettlewell came along and he went out in the daytime and he let a bunch of moths go in the middle of the day and he tested with mark and capture and select experiments and he found out that the birds ate the light ones because they could see them better on the bark of the tree because the lichen had gone and they were darker than they had been before the Industrial Revolution. And this was hailed as the greatest proof ever of natural selection. It turns out that the whole thing was staged. I wonder could anybody put their hand up here, if you've ever seen a moth resting on the bark of a tree trunk in the middle of a day. In fact, the experts who examine these things and look into them, a guy called... Uh, Cyril Clark. he spent 25 years studying this. He only ever saw one moth in his whole 25 years of experience resting on a tree trunk in the middle of the day. And what Kettlewell did was, he went out in the middle of the day and let them go, and uh, in the middle of the day, moths just land on the first thing they can and sit there. And so he took staged photographs, and the whole experiment was flawed from the beginning. And anyway, what did we start with? Moths. What do we finish with? Moss. All we have is a population shift. And the population shift between light and dark moss tells us nothing about where those moss actually came from in the first place. Turns out Kettlewell's explanation was too simple. Other factors were involved in the distribution. There is an evolutionist in the University of Chicago called Jerry Coyne. He was very candid about this. In Nature magazine, in a book review, he said, quote, from time to time, evolutionists re-examine a classic experimental study and find to their horror that it is flawed or downright wrong. He further said, my own reaction, this is to the peppered moth fraud, resembles the dismay attending my discovery at the age of six that it was my father and not Santa who brought the presents on Christmas Eve. Is the peppered moth story the extraordinary proof we need to convince us that you can get from a bacterium To Beethoven, by nothing but chance mutations selected by nature. Of course it's not. None of the five proofs that we've looked at so far fit into that category. But while we're on flying things, let's move on to fruit flies. What is a fruit fly? Well, it's a fly that feeds on fruit, tiny little creature. A very interesting creature in relation to mutation because it has a reproductive cycle every two weeks. And a very simple genetic structure, only between four and eight pairs of chromosomes. And what evolutionists have done to try and prove their theory is they've taken a bunch of these fruit flies and subjected the poor critters to x-rays. And they've x-rayed them and zapped them and x-rayed them and zapped them hoping to see what mutations can produce. They even managed to produce a second pair of wings on one of these poor creatures. Which was absolutely catastrophic for the poor creature because he couldn't fly at all. The little balancers that he normally uses for balancing turned into wings, and got in the way He couldn't mate, so it was no good for natural selection, and it was all artificially maintained. What do we start with? Fruit flies. What do we end with? Fruit flies. There's not one fruit fly in the world. It's any less of a fruit fly than all the other fruit flies in the world. In fact, this was a wonderful experiment to disprove evolution. If evolution is saying that mutations selected by nature have produced everything that we see today, then if we could produce millions of mutations and actually select them ourselves, then we would be mimicking what evolution has done. But in trying to mimic it, they were completely unsuccessful. I've been recently going back through this book by Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man. In his original book, Origin of Species, he doesn't deal with the evolution of man. He felt that that might prejudice uh, people accepting his theories. But in this book, he goes into it in great detail. There's a chapter in here where he gives what he calls three great classes of facts to prove that we came from ape-like creatures. Those three great classes of facts were, number one, similar bodily structures. Secondly, similar embryonic development. And thirdly, vestigial organs, what he called rudiments. Now mark this, this is what Darwin thought were three great classes of facts. and let's look at them one by one. The first one, homology. Homology is basically saying that when you find organs, bodily organs, which are similar in structure between animals and humans and so on, that proves they had a common ancestor. For example, from your shoulder down to the tip of your fingers, you can match bone for bone With a rat, a dog, a horse, a bat, a porpoise, a man, you can match it bone for bone. And so the evolutionist says, well, if evolution's true, that makes perfect sense because we all come from a common ancestor. But if creation's true, why would God have made everybody with the same structure? Well, that doesn't speak of a God who's very inventive, does it? And so Theodosius Dobzhansky made the famous statement, nothing in biology makes sense without evolution. So, Darwin's claim is structural similarity proves common ancestry. Or does it? Let's think about this. Your arm and your leg are profoundly similar in structure. You can match the radius and the ulna with the tibia and the fibula. You can match the humerus with the femur. You can match your arm with your leg structurally. Where does evolution say our arm came from? Evolution says our arms evolved from the pectoral fins of the fish, a lobe fish like the coelacanth. Where does evolution say our legs came from? It says our legs came from the pelvic fins of the fish. You see the inconsistency there? Our arms and legs are similar, and yet they don't have common descent. So an evolutionist says, a horse leg and a human leg are similar, so they came from a common ancestor. But it looks at a human arm and a human leg and says, no, they didn't have a common ancestor. Well, which is it? we see the inconsistency in the homology argument. In fact, since the coming into being of molecular biology we find out that similar organs in different animals actually come by a different genetic pathway which they wouldn't if they evolved from a common ancestor. In fact they come from different parts of the embryo. Is that the extraordinary proof we need to prove that a bacterium turned into Beethoven by chance mutations selected by nature? Certainly not.
0: Well, time doesn't permit us to listen to all of Mr. Penfold's points in this broadcast alone. We hope that you will join us again next week for the continuation of this topic. We trust that this simple presentation has enabled you to understand more about evolutionary theory, what it involves, and that it will help you to critically evaluate its claims. This is not just about head knowledge. A false understanding of God's universe and His role as creator and sustainer leads to a very wrong conclusion about who you are, why you're here, and where you're going. And of course this has disastrous consequences. We hope that you will look at God's word for yourself and believe God's explanation of things. Yes, you are here with a purpose. God loves you and has promised a remedy for your sin against Him in the giving of his beloved Son at the cross of Calvary. His message to you is this, to simply trust his unchanging word and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday night, as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and the very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. Also, feel free to take a look at other literature and audio offers at anchorpointradio.com, where you can also subscribe to our Anchorpoint podcast. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchorpoint where we believe that in times like these, you need a savior. And in times like these, you need an anchor.